Welcome to Notice History, the podcast where we uncover the history all around us. We're your hosts, Robin Mullins, Nick Bridges, and Keely McCabot. Summer has some great activities. Swimming, my personal favorite, eating ice cream, watching outdoor movies, and of course, the road trip. This summer, we're traveling on a cross-country virtual road trip, exploring some of Canada's regional history. On our last episode, we discussed several sites along the East Coast, and it's time for the next portion of our adventure. But before we can hop into the Notice History road trip wagon, yes, it's a wagon in my in my mind at least. Sweet, like a covered wagon, like a station wagon, like a station wagon. Oh, I like mine better. With like, a, okay. you know, where you like put like you not one of those fancy ones where like you have the DVD player up okay. top. One of those old school ones where you have to bring the TV, like mm. a giant with, TV with the tubes and everything. And we're talking about like wood paneling everywhere. Oh, of course, yeah, one hundred percent. No seatbelts. Seatbelts optional. It's gonna be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that kind of a station wagon. Okay. Yeah. So before we hop in there to go on our next piece of adventure, um, I want to know what would be on our road trip playlist. I'm going to say I've Been Everywhere by Johnny Cash. Oh. Right? Yes. You get to think of all the places you could road trip. And then realize that none of the ones in the song are anywhere that I've been. (laughs) What about you? Uh, So mine's not necessarily like about road trips, but it's working for the weekend. By Loverboy. <laughs> okay. Because I've listened, I, as a child, on a road trip, that was on our one cassette that we had for the entire 13-hour drive. Um, and so I just associate it with, you know, driving along the long stretch of highway that takes me to Philadelphia and seeing our driver kicking his leg out the window to the beat um, <laughs> to embarrass the rest of us. But really, I think he just embarrassed himself. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know. So... I love that. And also, like, when are you on a road trip, if not at least part of the time during the weekend? All right, Keely, you're up. Um, I like um, Take Me Home Country Roads by John Denver. I never really liked John Denver, but I've been doing a lot of driving back and forth between Ottawa and my, my hometown in London. Like, a lot of driving. And I just, one day, just got a taste for it. And now I'm like, okay, car, let's go. Well, now that we have our playlist at least partially sorted out, it's time to buckle up grab our favorite snacks, and possibly a sweater, because today our virtual road trip is heading north to the territories. The first stop on our road trip today is the Yukon. The Yukon was first populated by indigenous peoples who came to the region across the Bering Strait land bridge 4,000 years ago. The Yukon may have been the first area in Canada to be settled. Although some posts were established in the Yukon during the fur trade, the Yukon changed most dramatically after the discovery of gold by Skookum Jim, George Carmack, and Dawson Charlie on Rabbit Creek in 1896 near Dawson City. Their discovery sparked the Klondike Gold Rush, and the Yukon itself became a part of Canada only two years later. Between 1897 and 1899, prospectors flooded to the Yukon over the Chilkoot Trail to get to the gold fields. Mining remains one of the Yukon's primary industries to this day. Many of the historical sites in the Yukon are currently national historic sites operated by Parks Canada and other organizations. As one of the regions in Canada with little urbanization, transportation became a pivotal component to connect the north with the rest of Canada. The SS Klondike II, a riverboat which operated on the Yukon River, is one of these national historic sites. Located near downtown Whitehorse, it is one of the top visitor sites in the Yukon. 
As you can imagine, the SS Klondike II was the successor to a previous ship, known as the SS Klondike. The SS Klondike connected passengers between Dawson City and Whitehorse. At the time it was built, it had a cargo capacity 50% greater than any other ships of its time. However, in 1936, during its third voyage of the season, the ship struck a rock wall and ran aground. The SS Klondike II was launched in 1937. The onset of the Second World War saw a decline in silver prices, which caused a decrease in the need for the Klondike to operate. However, it did spend a season supporting the war effort and the building of the Alaska Highway. The Alaska Highway, the road from Dawson Creek, BC to Delta Junction, Alaska via Whitehorse, is a historical site in of itself, as it was needed to connect the continental U.S. with Alaska. The Klondike was decommissioned in 1999 and donated to the government by the White Pass and Yukon route. A trip to the Yukon also isn't complete without a stop in Dawson City. Dawson City is one of Canada's golden treasures in terms of historical sites. Excellent pun. Nobody laughed, and I am very upset about that. <laughs> the city itself was established because of its close proximity to the gold fields. Some of the sites include the Discovery Claim National Historic Site, Diamond Tooth Gerties, and Dredge Number 4. I really want to visit Diamond Tooth Gerties, but Dredge Number 4, why did they get left out and put out in the cold with such a boring name? Diamond Tooth Gertie sounds like a restaurant or like a really cool, I don't know, some kind of a shop. It makes me think of the rescuers down under when she's trapped at the bottom and there's like a diamond skull. Ooh. That's what it makes me think of. <laughs> you sure it's just not a place where you go to buy grills? It might be. Grills. Grills. Nick. <laughs> <laughs> well, although it may not have a super exciting name, Dredge Number 4 was built in 1912 for the Canadian Klondike Mining Company on claim 112 below Discovery and Bonanza Creek. It's the largest wooden hull bucket line dredge in North America and was designed by the Marion Steam Shovel Company. The dredge was built to help streamline the process of digging for gold. The dredge is two-thirds the size of a football field and eight stories high, so she's big. The dredge was capable of digging 17 meters below and five meters above water level using hydraulic motors. It was electrically powered and required 920 continuous horsepower during digging. According to Parks Canada, quote, The dredge moved along a pond of its own making, digging gold, burying gravel in front, recovering the gold through the revolving screen washing plant, then depositing the gravel out the stacker at the rear. A dredge pond could be 91 meters, 300 feet, by as much as 152 meters or 500 feet wide, depending on the width of the valley in which the dredge was working. The operating season was on average about 200 days, starting in late April or early May and operating 24 hours a day until late November. That's a long time. Busy. The SS Klondike 2 and Dredge Number 4 are just two examples of the more popular sites within the two largest communities of the Yukon. But other sites exist throughout many of these communities. National parks, such as Tombstone, are also common visitor destinations and are accessible by road. But much like the Hotel California, you can check into Tombstone, but you can't check out. <laughs> Add it to the playlist. Ooh, yeah. Actually, you don't need to add to the playlist. You just tune into whatever the local classic rock station is. And um, they'll play it for you. Yeah, they're obligated by law to play it on the hour every hour. So with new addition to the playlist in tow, we are carrying on our road trip into the Northwest Territories. There are three main regions in the Northwest Territories, the Arctic Archipelago, the Mackenzie Valley area, and the Arctic mainland. As far as road trips are concerned, the Northwest Territories recently opened Canada's first all-season highway to the Arctic coast, 
ending at Tuktoyaktuk. The Northwest Territories is also navigable by waterways, dog sled, and ice roads. And apparently Cade does not want to go there. No. My Doesn't poor like son. The sound of ice roads. No, he's like, I, it's summer, and I want to stay in summer. <laughs> it's like Fury Road, but cold. Canada's north is a land steeped in a rich history and culture. Cree, Dene, Talicho, Inuvialuit, and Gwich'in peoples all call this land home. Moreover, the Northwest Territories are also home to Métis, with many of the territory's population centers having ties to the fur trade and the Hudson's Bay Company, such as Fort Smith, Fort Simpson, Fort Liard, Fort Resolution. You get the idea. There's a lot of forts. My uh, HBC tea towel, which I finally got. Congratulations. Mostly as a result of the podcast where we talked about HBC swag. Uh, It actually has all the forts on it. It's really cool. Cool. I know. Historic sites in the Northwest Territories aren't limited to old buildings. Cultural landscapes are also included. These landscapes are recognized for their historic and current use, as well as their spiritual significance and their prominence in oral histories that have been passed down through the generations. In fact, the largest national historic site can be found in the Northwest Territories. Sayo Idacho National Historic Site, also known as Grizzly Bear Mountain and Scented Grass Hills, covers an area as large as Prince Edward Island. It was the first national historic site to be designated through consultation with an indigenous group, in this case, the Dene First Nation. And the Dene continue to be involved with the management of this important landscape. If being in the city is more your style, there's plenty of history to be found there too. Many of the old HBC posts are still standing. Check that tea towel! Or you can enjoy a bison poutine at the Wildcat Cafe, a 1930s log building straight from the early prospecting days. Fun fact, the cafe was also owned for a time by Ma Go, Yellow Knight's first recorded Chinese resident. While diamond mining remains one of the Northwest Territory's most well-known industries, tourism has been an essential part of the territory's economy, especially in recent years. In Tuktoyaktuk alone, there were three times more visitors at the local visitor information center than people who live in the community. It's expected that tourism will continue to have a big impact in these communities, for good or, well, we'll see. Many indigenous-led companies are thriving in this sector, especially through guiding, ecotourism, and cultural events. The next stop on our trip is none of it. Oh, better get out and walk. None of it is the point at which this road trip becomes almost impossible. This territory is vast and not connected to any other territory or province by rail or road. Furthermore, none of its communities are not connected to one another. For visitors coming from other parts of Canada, the only way to get to none of it is by air. Inside none of it, there are endless possibilities for exploring on foot, by boat, or by dog sled. And you can't forget the snowmobile. Nunavut is home to spectacular landscapes and natural beauty. While some parks provide ample opportunity for hiking and camping, others are dedicated to Nunavut's history. Visitors to Joe Haven can experience the Northwest Passage Territorial Trail, a walking tour that guides you through the history of European exploration to discover the Northwest Passage, as well as the search for the 1845 Franklin Expedition. And you better listen to Northwest Passage by Stan Rogers while you're doing that. Added to the playlist. Nunavut is also home to three of Canada's 40 heritage rivers, with a fourth one nominated. The Felon River, Kazan River, Sopper River, and the Copper Mine River, the last one being the nominated one. These are recognized for their natural and cultural heritage. To this day, these waterways are essential for navigation and for following seasonal animal migrations. The signs of long-standing Inuit occupation are visible from these rivers in the form of caches, cairns, and hunting blinds. Well, after all that traveling, I don't know about you guys, but I could really use a drink. Sure. 
Yeah, right. Guys, I'm on mat leave. Besides, it may be slightly difficult for us to get a drink, because while prohibition may seem like something out of bygone days, there are, in fact, a number of dry communities in the Northwest Territories, Nunavut, and the Yukon. In some communities, alcohol bans were lifted as recently as March of this year. However, I do know that if we drive all the way back to where we started in the Yukon, oh, we can boy. get a drink in Dawson City. That's right. Dawson City is one of my favorite places to get a drink with another human being's foot in it. And how. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it has a, it's a home to one of Canada's weirdest drinking traditions, the sour toe. The origin of the sour toe can be traced back to rum running in the 1920s. Louis Lincoln and his brother Otto were doing one of their deliveries when they ran into some nasty weather. In those days, the cross-border trek was done by dog sled. Trying to steer his dog sled in the blizzard, Louis stumbled and sunk his foot into frigid waters. However, they continued on, knowing that the police could be on their trail. By the time they were able to tend to Louis's foot, his big toe was completely frozen and had to be amputated. The brothers preserved the toe in a jar of alcohol. Gross? And also, why preserve it? For memories. <laughs> Never forget your big toe. Yeah. The old toad didn't surface again until years later, when it was found by Captain Dick Stevenson in an abandoned cabin. What a thing to find. What an exciting time to be alive. (laughs) I came for gold, but all I found was this toad. In a bunch of alcohol. Maybe I'll drink it. (laughs) Well, it was at that point that the idea of the Sour Toad Cocktail became established, and the Sour Toad Cocktail Club was formed. Since its inception, the club has acquired, by donation, over 10 toes. Ten people donated their toes to this cause. Mm-hmm. Or maybe just five people both toes. That's fair. Mm. That's fair. According to the Director of Communication for Health and Social Services of the Territorial Government, Patricia Livings, who, side note, is actually our research associate Nick Gillen's mom, numerous tests have been done and the toe is perfectly sanitary and is a popular tourist attraction in Dawson City. So green light on the toe. Yeah. Go for it. Get those toes in your life. Yeah. Or pass. If you choose, you can do what you want. No, you don't drink the toe because you're not oh, no. allowed to swallow it. You have to like mm-hmm. sign. It's like a huge deposit that you have to sign mm-hmm. over so that you don't drink the toe. Because if you do, it's a problem. And they've the- only got ten. <laughs> There's only ten. There's actually, if anyone's interested, there is a short documentary that we mentioned in the Utna Boot last season, um, and it's CBC Docs, and it's actually following the story of an American journalist who purposefully swallowed the toe. For a joke. Um, and then it just kind of chronicles him coming back to try to make it right. Um, and it's very interesting. I really enjoyed it. While it might seem like we've wrapped up the territories, we've really only touched the tip of the iceberg. Join us next week on our road trip. Who knows where we'll turn up? Well, well, we know, but that's for you to find out. We're not telling yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> Stay tuned. Notice History is a No History podcast. We are produced by Emily Cuggy and myself, Robin Mullins. This week's researchers were Stacey Devlin and Nick Gillen, with audio mixing by Emily Cuggy. For more information about the topics we covered today, check out our blog at nohistory.ca slash podcast. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to help the podcast, we'd love it if you could leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts from.